Section 13 of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 3 From the Point to the Plains. Chapter 4 The Woman Tempted Me. June is here. The examinations are in full blast. The point is thronged with visitors, and every hostelry in the neighborhood has opened wide its doors to accommodate the swarms of people interested in the graduating exercises and eager for the graduating ball. Pretty girls there are in force, and at Craney's they are living three and four in a room. The joy of being really there on the point, near the cadets, aroused by the morning gun and shrill piping of the reveille, saluted hourly by the notes of the bugle enabled to see the gray uniforms half a dozen times a day and to actually speak or walk with the wearers half an hour out of twenty-four whole ones being apparent compensation for any crowding or discomfort indeed crowded as they are the girls at craney's are objects of boundless envy to those whom the fates have consigned to the resorts down around the picturesque but distant falls there is a little coterie at hawkshurst that is fiercely jealous of the sisterhood in the favored nook at the north edge of the plain and one of their number who is believed to have completely subjugated that universal favorite cadet mckay has been heard to say that she thought it an outrage that they had to come home so early in the evening and mope away the time without a single cadet when up there at craney's the halls and piazzas were full of gray coats and bell buttons every night until tattoo a very brilliant and pretty girl she is too and neither mrs mckay nor nanny can wonder at it that will's few leisure moments are monopolized you are going to have me all to yourself next week little mother he laughingly explains and goodness knows when i'm going to see miss waring again and though neither mother nor sister is at all satisfied with the state of affairs both are too unselfish to interpose how many an hour have mothers and sometimes sisters waited in loneliness at the old hotel for boys whom some other fellow's sister was holding in silken fetters somewhere down in shady flirtation it was with relief inexpressible that mrs mckay and uncle jack had hailed the coming of the first of june with a margin of only two demerits will had safely weathered the reefs and was practically safe safe at last he had passed brilliantly in engineering had been saved by his prompt and ready answers the consequences of a fess with clean blackboard in ordnance and gunnery had won a ringing though involuntary round of applause from the crowded galleries of the riding hall by daring horsemanship and he was now within seven days of the prized diploma and his commission for heaven's sake billy pleaded big burton the first captain don't do anything to ruin your chances now i've just been talking with your mother and miss nanny and i declare i never saw that little sister of yours looking so white and worried mckay laughs yet his laugh is not light-hearted he wonders if burton has the faintest intuition that at this moment he is planning an escapade that means nothing short of dismissal if detected 
Down in the bottom of his soul he knows he is a fool to have made the rash and boastful pledge to which he now stands committed. Yet he has never backed out before, and now he would dare a dozen dismissals, rather than that she should have a chance to say, I knew you would not come. That very afternoon, just after the ride in the hall before the Board of Visitors, Miss Waring had been pathetically lamenting that with another week they were to part, and that she had seen next to nothing of him since her arrival. "'If you only could get down to Hawkshurst,' she cried, "'I'm sure when my cousin Frank was in the Corps, he used to run it down to Cousins to see Cousin Kate, and that was what made her cousin Kate to me,' she adds, with sudden dropping of the eyelids that is wondrously effective." "'Easily done,' recklessly answers McKay, whose boyish heart is set to hammer-like beating by the closing sentence. "'I didn't know you sat up so late there, or I would have come before. Of course I have to be here at Taps. No one can escape that.' "'Oh, but really, Mr. McKay, I did not mean it. I would not have you run such a risk for worlds. I meant some other way.' and so she protests, although her eyes dance with excitement and delight. What a feather this in her cap of coquetry! What a triumph over the other girls, especially that hateful set at Craney's! What a delicious confidence to impart to all the little coterie at Hawkshurst! How they must envy her the romance, the danger, the daring, the devotion of such an adventure, for her sake! Of late years such tales had been rare. Girls worth the winning simply would not permit so rash a project, and their example carried weight. But here at Hawkshurst was a lively young brood, chaperoned by a matron as wild as her charges, and but little older, and eager one and all for any glory or distinction that could pique the pride or stir the envy of that craney set. It was too much for a girl of Sally Waring's type. Her eyes have a dangerous gleam, her cheeks a witching glow. She clings tighter to his arm as she looks up in his face. And, and yet, wouldn't it be lovely to think of seeing you there? Are you sure there'd be no danger? Be on the north piazza about quarter of eleven, is the prompt reply. I'll wear a dark suit, eyeglass, brown moustache, and so on. Call me Mr. Freeman while strangers are around. There goes the parade drum, au revoir, and he darts away. Cadet Captain Stanley, inspecting his company a few moments later, stops in front and gravely rebukes him. You are not properly shaved, McKay. I shaved this morning, is the somewhat sullen reply while an angry flush shoots up towards the blue eyes. No razor has touched your upper lip, however, and I expect the class to observe regulations in this company, demerit or no demerit, is the firm, quiet answer, and the young captain passes on to the next man. McKay grits his teeth. Only a week more of it, thank God, he mutters, when sure that Stanley is beyond earshot. Three hours more, and taps is sounded. 
All along the brilliant façade of barracks there is sudden and simultaneous dousing of the glim, and a rush of the cadets to their narrow nests. There is a minute of banging doors and hurrying footsteps, and gruff queries of, "'All in?' as the cadet officers flit from room to room in each division to see that lights are out and every man in bed. Then forth they come from every hallway, tripping lightly down the stone steps and converging on the guardhouse, where stand at the doorway the dark forms of the officer in charge and the cadet officer of the day. Each in turn halts, salutes, and makes his precise report, and when the last subdivision is reported, the executive officer is assured that the battalion of cadets is present in barracks, and at the moment of inspection, at least, in bed. Presumably, they remain so. Two minutes after inspection, however, Mr. McKay is out of bed again and fumbling about in his alcove. His roommate sleepily inquires from beyond the partition what he wants in the dark, but is too long accustomed to his vagaries to expect definite information. When Mr. McKay slips softly out into the hall, after careful reconnaissance of the guard-house windows, his chum is soundly asleep and dreaming of no worse freak on Billy's part than a raid around barracks. It is so near graduation that the rules are relaxed, and in every first-classman's room the tailor's handiwork is hanging among the gray uniforms. It is a dark suit of this civilian dress that Billy dons as he emerges from the blankets. A natty derby is perched upon his curly pate, and a monocle hangs by its string. But he cannot light his gas and arrange the soft brown moustache with which he proposes to decorate his upper lip. He must run into Stanley's, the tower room, at the north end of his hall. Phil looks up from the copy of military law which he is diligently studying. As inspector of subdivision, his light is burned until eleven. "'You do make an uncommonly swell young sit, Billy,' he says pleasantly. "'Doesn't he, Mac?' he continues, appealing to his roommate, who, lying flat on his back with his head towards the light and a pair of muscular legs in white trousers displayed on top of a pile of blankets, is striving to make out the vacancies in a recent army register. Mac rolls over and lazily expresses his approval. "'I'd do pretty well if I had my moustache out. I meant to get the start of you fellows, but you're so meanly jealous you blocked the game, Stan.' All the rancor is gone now. He well knows that Stanley was right. "'Sorry to have had to row you about that, Billy,' says the captain gently. "'You know I can't let one man go and not a dozen others.' "'Oh, hang it all! What's the difference when time's so nearly up?' responds McKay, as he goes over to the little wood-framed mirror that stands on the iron mantel. "'Here's a substitute, though. How's this for a moustache?' he asks as he turns and faces them. Then he starts for the door. Almost in an instant Stanley is up and after him. Just at the head of the iron stairs he hails and halts him. "'Billy, you are not going out of barracks?' Unwillingly McKay yields to the pressure of the firm hand on his shoulder and turns. "'Suppose I were, Stanley. What danger is there?' 
Lee inspected last night, and even he wouldn't make such a plan to trip me. Who ever heard of a tax inspecting after taps two successive nights? There's no reason why it should not be done, and several reasons why it should, is the uncompromising reply. Don't risk your commission now, Billy, in any mad scheme. Come back and take those things off. Come. Blatherskite, don't hang on to me like a pickpocket, Stan. Let me go, says McKay, half vexed, half laughing. I've got to go, man, he says more seriously. I've promised. A sudden light seems to come to Stanley. Even in the feeble gleam from the gas-jet in the lower hall, McKay can see the look of consternation that shoots across his face. You don't mean you're not going down to Hawkshurst, Billy? Why not to Hawkshurst, if anywhere at all, is the sullen reply. Why? Because you are risking your whole future, your profession, your good name, McKay. You're risking your mother's heart for the sport of a girl who is simply toying with you. Take care, Stanley. Say what you like to me about myself, but not a word about her. This is no time for sentiment, McKay. I have known Miss Waring three years, you perhaps three weeks. I tell you solemnly that if she has tempted you to run it down there to see her, it is simply to boast of a new triumph to the silly pack by whom she is surrounded. I tell you she— You tell me nothing. I don't allow any man to speak in that way of a woman who is my friend, says Billy, with much majesty of mien. Take your hand off, Stanley, he adds coldly. I might have had some respect for your counsel, if you had had the least for my feelings. And, wrenching his shoulder away, McKay speeds quickly down the stairs, leaving his comrade speechless and sorrowing in the darkness above. In the lower hall he stops and peers cautiously over towards the guardhouse. The lights are burning brilliantly up in the room of the officer in charge, and the red sash of the officer of the day shows through the open doorway beneath. Now is his time, for there is no one looking. One quick leap through the dim stream of light from the lantern at his back and he will be in the dark area, and can pick his noiseless way to the shadows beyond. It is an easy thing to gain the footpath beyond the old retaining wall back of the guardhouse, scud away under the trees along the winding ascent towards Fort Putnam, until he meets the back road halfway up the heights, then turn southward through the rocky cuts and forest aisles until he reaches the main highway, then follow on through the beautiful groves, through the quiet village, across the bridge that spans the stream above the falls, and then, only a few hundred yards beyond, there lies Hawkshurst and its bevy of excited, whispering, applauding, delighted girls. If he meet officers, all he has to do is put on a bold face and trust to his disguise. He means to have a glorious time and be back, tingling with satisfaction on his exploit by a little after midnight. In five minutes his quarrel with Stanley is forgotten, and, all alert and eager, he is halfway up the heights and out of sight, or hearing, of the barracks. The roads are well-nigh deserted. He meets one or two squads of soldiers coming back from pass at the falls, but no one else. 
the omnibuses and carriages bearing home those visitors who have spent the evening listening to the band at the point are all by this time out of the way and it is early for officers to be returning from evening calls at the lower hotel the chances are two to one that he will pass the village without obstacle of any kind billy's spirits rise with the occasion and he concludes that a cigarette is the one thing needful to complete his disguise and add to the general nonchalance of his appearance having no matches he waits until he reaches the northern outskirts of the falls and then steps boldly into the first bar he sees and helps himself coming forth again he throws wide open the swinging screen doors and a broad belt of light is flashed across the dusty highway just in front of a rapidly driven carriage coming north the meddlesome horses swerve and shy the occupants are suddenly whirled from their reposeful attitudes though fortunately not from their seats a top-hat goes spinning out into the roadway and a fan flies through the midst of the glare the driver promptly checks his team and backs them just as willie all impulsive courtesy leaps out into the street picks up the hat with one hand the fan with the other and restores them with a bow to their owners only in the nick of time does he recollect himself and crush down the jovial impulse to hail by name colonel stanley and his daughter miriam the sight of a cavalry uniform and lieutenant lee's tall figure on the forward seat has however its restraining influence and he turns quickly away unrecognized but alas for billy only two days before had the distribution been made and every man in the graduating class was already wearing the beautiful token of their brotherhood the civilian garb the derby hat the monocle the stick the cigarette and the false moustache were all very well in their way but in the beam of light from the windows of that ill-starred saloon there flashed upon his hand a gem that two pairs of quick though reluctant eyes could not and did not fail to see the class ring of eighteen seventy mm. end of section thirteen